0: Our Live Political Gabfest is brought to you by Audible. Get unlimited access to Audible's channels by going to audible.com/originals. And while you're there, check out their new channel series, Presidents Are People too. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for July 14th, 2016. The last week was awful and next week I have to go to Cleveland edition. We're live. We're live in front of the largest crowd in Gabfest history at the Warner Theater in Washington DC. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. To my left in most things and on stage is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello Emily.
1: Hello David. Hello everybody.
0: And to Emily's left but only to establish our feng shui is John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. Hey. On this week's GabFest, the murder of five white police officers in Dallas, the murder of two African American men by police officers in Baton Rouge, in Minnesota, how much worse can everything get? Then a brilliant article in The Atlantic diagnosis the illness at the heart of American politics, why Donald Trump is not to blame for our political collapse. You are.
1: We. We are.
0: No, them. They Us. are. <laughs> then the Republican convention is next week in Cleveland. What will happen? How many times will Donald Trump speak? Will any Republican politicians actually be there? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, including a Bazelon meditation on Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
1: Oh, I got like a special <laughs> promo.
0: Then in Slate Plus, we'll have a Q&A with our audience. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. It has been a terrible week, a week of confusion and frustration, the pointless deaths of seven people, two African-American men murdered in suspicious circumstances at the hands of police officers, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge and Philando Castile in Minnesota, then five white police officers murdered in a depraved act of racial vengeance in Dallas, These events have thrown America into a paroxysm of, I would say, unclassifiable and impotent despair, a mourning and a fury and a kind of nihilism. On the left, there's sorrow about how Johnson's monstrous killing spree has also distracted from the legitimate concerns that many Americans have about police violence towards African Americans. On the right, there's fear that a poisonous racial atmosphere and tension has made police work more dangerous and harder than ever. So, John, you've talked about this on your show, you've thought about this a lot. Is anything that you've heard in the past week suggest to you that we're heading towards some kind of uh, national reco- or national coalescing and reckoning with this where, where we agree on what the problems are and agree on what solutions are, or have we divided, Is which is what I tend to see, into into our camps?
2: We've definitely divided into our camps. We definitely don't know what the solutions are, although it must be said if you just try and grab one little thing. If you look at the use of excessive force force statistics in Dallas before the shooting happened, they were down at a two-decade low. Now, as people have pointed out, that's because Dallas was a, a particularly... Uh, had a particularly bad situation in the relationship between police and the community. But the police chief there, who has now received praise from all kinds of different quarters in his ability to handle this crisis, um, he was driving those numbers down by doing what a lot of people have cited are um, the the way forward in terms of building... I was about to say rebuilding, but as um, Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund points out, that in some communities, a relationship between the police and the community has never existed. It's not a question of getting back to some better time. There has never been a, a time of trust and, and working together in some communities in America. But in Dallas, they were making, inc- making progress and doing the things. So there is a way forward. In terms of de-escalation, in terms of community policing and community relations, the I'll be interested to hear what Emily has to say about body cameras because I didn't I had thought and heard so many people talk about body cameras as a kind of solution. but i had I've learned more in in doing interviews and studying about it that there is a kind of surveillance aspect to body cameras that makes them um, tricky and not the They get thrown out as like, oh, we'll do that and it'll be fine. It matters a lot what you
1: do with the footage. Right,
2: exactly. And who has control over the footage and all the rest of it. Um, But so those are some things that have been done, can be done, and so forth. But what, um, as you pointed out, there's a lot of going to the corners. There's been some incredibly incendiary things said. There's just been some kind of unspecific things said, too. I think, frankly, one of the most useful things said was what Newt Gingrich said about white people needing to understand the way African Americans feel towards the police, just in terms of creating the predicate for a conversation in which both sides put on the table as their first offer a recognition of the worldview of the other side. The president did some of that in his speech as well. But that, it seems to me, is the first thing. Like, it should be table stakes before you start talking about solutions. That you say the three things that you understand about the other person's point of view. I kind of think that's about every single conversation, but this one in particular.
1: Takes you a long time to start those conversations. Everyone has to, like, have yeah. their predicates uh, out there first. Right. Do your but kids would... have to do that before they sit down to dinner?
2: Yeah. <laughs> they do. You know, but uh, because in this case, people go so, qu- so quickly to their corners
0: the table stake I might put there, the astonishing number for me was that Philando Castile had been stopped by police 52 times in the past 14 years. I've been stopped by police once. Really? In the past 14 wow, years. And I, nothing happened. I was like, you know, go ahead. And I was speeding and I probably should have been ticketed. So Emily, talk a little bit about the use of deadly force in these cases. I mean, one of the conversations that that we're going to have is around is the, is is what's, what, what is happening to cops that they feel the need to, to use deadly force uh, legitimate? And what's their right to use it as, as in the cases of Sterling and Castile?
1: The Department of Justice would like the standard to be all other means of preventing imminent and grave danger to officers or other people have failed. But legally speaking, if you um, have a reasonable belief that that kind of imminent harm is um, apparent, then you can use deadly force. So it all turns on this idea of what's reasonable. And the more people carry guns, the more the police feel at risk from people's guns, or at risk from particular people, the more a jury might find and a judge might give instructions that would lead you to believe that the use of force was reasonable. And we know that most of the time the courts have been very reluctant to hold police responsible. So changing that standard could be meaningful. Philadelphia is another place where deadly shootings have reduced, and the police department there actually did change the standard. And the U.K., which has a much lower level of shootings for a variety of reasons, also has a different standard where you have to show that it was necessary to use lethal force.
2: So what's interesting in the Philando Castile case is whether owning or whether having a gun on your possession, even if it's permitted, is sufficient to trigger that sense of
1: threat... If you're black, well, right? that's if the you're point. A black man. No, but
2: right. But of course, simply having a firearm on your uh, person is a protected right. Right. So that's where it gets
0: uh, tricky in terms of and yeah. and presumably the police officer's reasonable expectation. Now that you've had police officers assassinated in New York and Dallas, that their reasonable expectation of their own sense of fear is heightened, and and they will. F- there will, at least legally speaking, there will be any crime they commit will be seen as more justified.
1: Right, potentially. So then if you don't have a very strong legal backstop against police of use of force, what is going to bring it down? Is there enough social pressure building from Black Lives Matter, from hopefully a dawning realization among enough white people that black people have... A very good reason to be afraid as they're walking around. I have a little bit of confusion about why that's so hard to understand. If you're in a group that is more often targeted, unarmed black men are shot by the police at a much higher rate than white people absent other variables. Why is it so hard to understand why you would feel afraid? That seems pretty natural.
2: Right. Yeah, I don't think they afraid part is what the debate is over. It's the why you should be afraid. So One group would say you should be afraid because the police have an implicit bias in the work that they do and that that can land on you as a young African American male. Other people would say that cops feel afraid because African-American young men are shooting each other and they think they're going to get shot too. So it's a question of who to place the blame on for why the fear... But
1: how could you ever blame all the young black men who are not committing crimes from the fact that the cops are associating with them because of their skin color with people? That just seems obviously deeply unfair, right?
2: I mean, nevertheless, people... People are definitely have that view.
1: It's such a group associ- a kind of guilt though that comes from a group association, which we've basically come to an agreement, right? That we don't, we don't judge do people that. by their skin color. I don't but see what the point of confusion about that is, honestly.
0: Emily, one thing I would one thing I want to take issue with you with around is that that. On this show before, you've talked about how you tell your children don't talk to cops, basically.
1: Don't call the police on other people. Don't, yeah, and don't, don't assume that you should trust them. But yes, I think true. part
0: of what the solution is to all of this, and your children are white, yes, is actually restoring the civic bond between police and citizens. And you have an obligation in that vein to say to your children, yes, the police are to be trusted. I mean, but if you, Why? if you, ex- if you ex- well, if you expect to live in a world in which the police are going to feel a, a reciprocal bond with citizens, then you need to take steps too, to say that we, we have to respect the work they do, admire the work they do, value it and, and look to them for help and assistance. Right. And just so before you answer. That's he's-
1: totally fair. I guess I would want my kids to absorb a slightly more complex message, which is, Most cops are doing their jobs well. They're doing the best they can. We should respect and honor the risks they take for all of us. They're, you know, trying to make our lives better, most of them. But that doesn't necessarily protect black people who do face this implicit bias in a lot of places. Don't assume that they're going to treat people equally, unfortunately. And also, if you're... If you are implicated in some way in having committed a crime, knowing something about a crime, think really carefully before you talk to them without a lawyer. And that's just from all the examples we have of people talking to the police without a lawyer and deeply regretting it.
2: Can I go back to your point about what creates change? Some of the police officers that I've talked to the... Desire for change comes within the force. They want better community relations because it'll lower the level of stress on the cops. So, um, And it leads to better policing. And that means better policing in terms of figuring out where the bad guys are before. And there's an interesting terrorism vector here, which is increasing community policing and just relationships throughout the community and all different colors and all different pockets means that law enforcement is closer to the kind of rhythms of the moment. And you can pick up stuff where people are planning bigger and more awful things. If you have that kind of easy, reciprocal relationship, and when you walk through the community, you're not, it's not seen as an immediate moment of tension.
1: Right. It seems that we have a grip on some, Earnest likely solutions. And then there's the matter of actually changing a lot of existing police departments, which, like a lot of parts of the criminal justice system, have disincentives for operating in the fairest way. Which is, so the police, more than prosecutors and courts, are interacting with a lot of people who are innocent. They're at the front. And so, in a sense, there's the most pressure on them. And yet, in neighborhoods where there are lots of poor people or there's high crime, the kind of a set of assumptions about guilt and innocence tend to shift, and that's where we see a lot of problems.
2: Right. Well, that's what goes back to—it seems to me part of that goes back to David's point, which is that um, if you get them out of the business of issuing and monitoring traffic citations— in other words, if you stop having them do everything, and this is what the police chief in Dallas said, is basically we're doing too much. If you have them interacting at every tiny little level, then you create condi- the conditions for more confrontation over small stuff that can then escalate. So you need to shrink the portfolio uh, from doing, and also obviously the other second part of what David has said, not to let this drop, is that in some communities, as they found in Ferguson, that there was a. Like a basically municipal funding scheme that came from shaking down yeah, if
1: if if fees and tickets are funding your whole municipal government, that's not the right incentive
0: structure. I want to close with this on a slightly different note. So, I our old uh, colleague and boss, Michael Kinsley, I remember talking to him about what it was like in the late 1960s. And he said, you know, it w- was weird. We really thought it was all going to fall apart. We really just thought the government was going to collapse. So this is him, him talking about what it was like in 1968. And so there have been these comparisons made to the unrest of 1968, the sense that we are a country which is riven and chaotic and where there isn't uh, a sense of national unity and shared story about the country. Do you guys feel that it is as dangerous as, as people like Kinsley felt it was then.
2: No, I mean, there were tanks in the street in Washington, D.C. People C., were the rioting. 60s. They had to call it the national guard in Michigan because 37 people were shot in Detroit, in Camden, you know, I mean, there were massive, like, you know, massive deaths of where you had entire police, um, National Guard forces going against the protesters. That seems to me to be the the big difference. One thing, though, that's well, but fascin- part of it
0: may just be that that actually the government has gotten a lot better at controlling protests than it used to. That it's harder it's harder to form your 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 angry splinter group because surveillance is much better and the police tactics are better. But that the I don't think that the rage and disappointment and anger are any less than they might have been. I mean, we don't have a Vietnam War, so people right. aren't being We don't have 50,000 combat deaths over the last five years, which we did have then. Right. Well, maybe that's it.
2: I don't know. I mean, I think they're in the police forces that know how to do it well. There are protests, and I mean, this again, going back to Dallas, when you have protesters taking pictures with the police during the protest, like that represents some evolution in the way p- police... If you look at Dallas versus Baton Rouge and the way the police tr- treated the protesters, I think there are places where it's not happening like well, it would have in the Maybe 60s.
0: my question isn't explicitly the relationship between police and protesters, because I think you're right that we haven't seen protests of the sort that we saw in 68. It's that is, are we at risk of a, of a gross national fracture isn't is, this
1: more about Donald Trump's candidacy than it is about the events of the last week and a half week?
0: Well, but Donald Trump's c- candidacy is Symptom, you, is maybe. symptomatic, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's not symptomatic. Maybe it's it's causal, but.
1: I'm not sure I think Trump's candidacy is symptomatic of this divide over the police and African-Americans and poor neighborhoods and urban life. It seems like it has more to—I mean, there's the problem of the aggrieved white voter might be similar, but the tensions that Trump is tapping into have more to do with immigration and free trade and stagnant wages and inequality,
2: right? Yeah. Yes, I think it's a different—I mean, Yes. We can get to that in the Trump section.
0: Yeah, there's Trump section coming. All right. (laughs) This episode of the Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. One of the most important articles you'll read this year is the cover story in this month's Atlantic. We've, I feel like we've said that a lot of times, but we'll say it again. The piece is called How American Politics Went Insane by Jonathan Rauch, and he tries to explain why our political system seems on the verge of collapse in a way it hasn't since the 1850s. I'm going to quickly summarize a, a very elegant and, and brilliant argument. Roush's argument is basically you—you're at fault. Number one, it's that America has reformed its politics into a state of chaos. That for most of our history, our political system was dominated by middlemen, party leaders, and institutional figures who did deals, who greased things, who organized groups, who raised money, who delivered votes, who distributed pork. And these were party leaders and chiefs and and senior figures, and they were highly invested in a political system, and in its in its stability and in creating a system of rewards and punishment to get things done. But political reform has stripped those middlemen of their power. So we have electoral reform, so we directly elect senators and have primaries where we're directly choosing presidential candidates. There are limits on borks and earmarking, and hence the limits to the ability to reward politicians for taking hard votes. We have the abolition of congressional seniority rules and prerogatives. So it reduces the incentive for any young legislator to go along with anything or to serve loyally. There are limits on donations to parties and to candidates, which in effect shifts the money into private donations to outside money. The transparency and open meetings reduces smoke filled rooms, but it also reduces the ability of people to make deals in private. And the result Roush claims is that we have politicians who are loyal to nothing except themselves. There and there is no infrastructure for getting something done. That we have what he calls chaos syndrome, um, and one of the impacts of this, and he, it's not clear whether this is a cause or a result, is that we have huge anti-political sentiment in the country. Roush argues that anti-politicians constitute three of the four standing candidates remaining. That Cruz. Uh, Trump, and Bernie Sanders were all essentially running as anti-politicians. And so people stop believing in politics, they stop believing in political solutions, and not believing in political solutions and not believing that, that these changes is possible. They don't organize, they don't believe in effective leadership and become incredibly cynical about it. And so it becomes a, a vicious self-perpetuating cycle. So, Emily, what is right in Roush's critique and what, what is missing? Or did I miss something? Don't yeah. you no, want well, to answer
1: that question hold since on. you're no, I in think there, love uh, with this argument?
0: It's so,
2: this, is the, this is the David plotts
1: Crita Yeah,
2: but uh, I mean, it's not... Which isn't to denigrate it. Um, no.
1: <laughs> it's to honor Well, it. no, it's not. It's uh, what used to say, not to
2: to put it on some side category as a pet <laughs> thing of yours. it's making it, it worse
1: has, and worse, actually.
0: No, no. Well, what, do you...
1: It's brilliant. So um, he said that at the beginning.
2: Yeah. I guess here's one thing that I think is slightly off, and I'm not uh, taking the meat of the argument, but it's the last thing you said, and it's the only thing I can remember. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, what what Trump is offering, and Sanders too, where this is one of the tensions here, is they are they are anti politicians to be sure, but Trump is basically saying, "I can fix it all using the political system." so that there is still at the base of this argument a belief in the system that it's just being run incorrectly and Sanders was saying the same thing too his revolution will work and then it will the machine will be taken over by his good juices and it will work correctly as opposed to what I think you said which is but what's the the
1: alternative he's going to like become a monarch I mean if you're going to run for president (laughs) you have to believe that being president could somehow I don't
2: right but what I thought what David was saying is that the system is so broken that no that these these candidates are are
0: but but what happens is that you that you develop these so authoritarian personalities come along and say and and dupe a credulous public public and say we're we're going to solve it because we're going to knock heads we're going to make you know we're going to do things differently and you know if Trump is elected they will. He, everyone will quickly be disabused of that knowledge. But no nobody Trump neither Trump nor Sanders is saying, actually, the solutions are really hard because they require acts of political compromise and cynicism and, and abandoning of principles, which is what the truth is. That right. politics, the politics, the to me, the the You're the illness, for that that thing.
1: Deep well, the,
0: Yeah, no, the illness the illness of America is an idealism. That we have a kind of idealism about politics that we don't have about anything else in life. That 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 family life and work life is a constant process but, of negotiated disappointment, where you right, where, but 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 we don't but, believe I mean, that about really po- our huge fraction. Like politics. Yes. a huge fraction of Americans don't believe that about politics. They be, believe politics is a is a whole loaf solution. I
2: don't think that's not, well, you wait. It's not, first of all, that's not the most of America is actually kind of in the messy middle. It's just that they don't have control of the conversation. Most of Americans think, "Yeah, you compromise and it's not perfect, but you get 80/20 and you're going to be okay." It's just that it's just that the, what our polls show is is that people who participate in caucuses and primaries and social media are all on the all or nothing part of the spectrum. Well, but that's the
0: because the they, the that vast majority in the middle doesn't has has lost the habit and the desire to participate and express well, they also right to change. Well, I was making way. a
1: slightly different argument. With, had to do with not the political middle, but middlemen. The whole idea of yeah. greasing the wheels of the parties, of the world, the, the days in which you could tap the best candidate for the open office, as opposed to having it be Christine O'Donnell, the witch person from right. Delaware, who won with a very small percentage of the primary Republican vote. Um. I was so glad to be reminded of her. I forgot about her. Yeah, that was really entertaining.
2: You really went went deep into the vault for that one.
1: I read the article. Does that mean that you didn't finish it, John Dickerson? No, no, I
2: chance? help.
0: Are you (laughs) stunned? I'm I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Well, I'll raise another. I'll raise another point, which I don't think Roush talked about, which to me is really important: is that that another reason why I think our political participation, the habit of political participation has fallen off for so many people is that there's this vast swath of things which are entitlements now, and Social Security, Medicare being the the main ones, where people just expect to get it and There is no actual government action that gets taken to approve Social Security every year. Basically, effectively runs on a kind of autopilot. God, can you imagine
1: if there was? Well, no.
0: If there was, politics would work.
3: work. Politics would
0: work if they had to vote every year on Social Security and Medicare. They would have because you would have to do deals. You would have to say, and people, people who wanted to cut Medicare would have to stand up and say, you know, we want to cut Medicare because it's, you know, its growth curve is untenable or whatever nonsense they wanted to say about it and if they had to, if that had to be approved every year congress would actually take action in a way that they don't
1: right and that was the problem because it's with closing the government that the list of things services that would right. actually list of, stop was right. weirdly small right but so
0: i think what happens to the citizens in that situation is that that the major the majority of things that you actually want and expect from your government uh happen kind of automatically without the legislature doing anything or having to fight about it and therefore you the, the government you can up, the legislature whole rest ends up fighting about all the stupid shit and 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 doesn't and doesn't have to doesn't have to act
2: but wasn't that because people at one point decided you know it's probably good for old people to have a little bit of money and get taken care of when they're sick in the, instead of having to live in the street and they We're, thought that would probably always be of good coo- of course of course but no of
0: course i the I don't
1: collateral damage effects. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I get it, 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 I get
0: it. I get it. But it but I'm just saying. I'm not wasn't arguing worthy. against social security. Yeah, I'm arguing against. I'm arguing against Insulating us learning it. to appreciate social security sure. every year, and, and Congress having to. Act in it, and you, as as voters, having to stand up and say, you know what, Social Security should be increased, and not having whatever some random automatic formula kind of change it in in whatever way it does.
2: Can I challenge the idea that there was ever a time that anybody ever ran for office saying, "Here's hard solutions and compromises that are going to be tough to work out"? Nobody ever runs that way.
0: Right, but also in
2: marriage. Can I just say, interrupt and hit the microphone at the same time? Sure. In all in relationships and. Marriage is the, you still hold the, like, shining ideal aloft and David. you're constantly striving towards it. When you, when you lower, I'm, I, I ran right past that. I'm not going to affirm her negativity. Um, but if you keep the shining ideal, you're still striving towards that. You fall short of the ideal, but the but if you keep lowering the ideal, then you're just like ah, we might as well just get in the sweatpants Your and get in the parkland. Your vision very laundry. dreary,
1: no, no, plodding no. in the rain to me. Like oh, it will never be great, but here I am plodding along in the pouring yeah. You, rain with that's kind I
0: do believe that you just plot along. But nobody
1: yes. wants to just have their life be plodding along in the rain. You want to imagine the sun's going to come out, and that if you do something. I don't even know
0: the what other. the metaphor we're on here. Was it, is it marriage? <laughs> is it raining? Is it humid? Um, you're
1: plodding and it's raining. It's dreary.
0: But that's is that marriage or that's government? I don't remember.
1: <laughs> government.
0: That's government. Um, I think the, basically but, uh, we need to dismount from all metaphors and. Well, uh, all right. If I, let me try to go with your metaphor. Yes, you want it to be a sunny day. You, we would all like it to be a sunny day and go hang out. But you know what? A lot of the time, it's not a sunny day. You got to sit in the oh, office and work knows and slog that already, it out. already
1: yeah, but a lot but, of the time, it's not a sunny right, day. Right.
0: But that and and in your work life and your marital life and your family life, you accept those kind of constraints and limitations. But in say religion and politics, you don't. You you the ideal the ideal remains the ideal all the time, and you don't ever say like, well, okay. We didn't get that, but that's fine. You, well, you, I think you John's get...
1: right that you're exaggerating the degree to which people really expect to get the whole pie and not a piece of the pie, but also you're not leaving any room for inspirational leadership because right now the sort of demagogue form of leadership looks so suspect. Also but... if... Sorry. No, sorry, no,
2: uh, please. Well, no, if the structure... Here's another tension in... I don't believe in
0: inspirational leadership. Yeah. <laughs> I would much rather have like a super competent... Uh, okay. Congress, like a bunch of like hacks who sit and literally fat guys with cigars, cutting deals, building highways that are not that necessary. That is what I would like. Yeah.
1: You you discredit the importance of corruption every time. I I don't don't think that it really matters, but but actually it affects people's lives tremendously. In countries that have a high corruption index, things are not going so well for the people who live there. Right? So I feel like your idealism wait. about this is that you never had to go, you know, get your license renewed and have someone to tell you that you have to pay them on the side to get the most basic service.
2: But wait, you, you disagree with inspirational leadership, period, or in politics?
0: Well, it, in, in politics these days, inspiration... Because he was my boss,
2: so I'm yeah. just trying to...
0: <laughs> and then you, where do you work now?
2: Because uh... he
0: inspired me to greater things.
1: Elsewhere.
2: No, but you have yourself, in fact, produced inspirational leadership. Yeah. But inspirational leadership in
0: politics becomes, first of all, people people place too much hope in it. So we saw that with President Obama. We saw it a bit with Bill Clinton, Donald Trump. If if that's not an example of of charismatic leadership (laughs) at work, I don't know what is. And it's not that an inspirational leader isn't helpful, especially in times of national crisis, it's that most of the time, like a George, uh, H. W. Bush, who's just like a, a a plotter and a and a guy who who can do a deal and is basically acting from a high sense of integrity, is a is a good bet in the long run. So that's that's a fine argument, uh, and, but and and we don't allow those people really well, to have purchase in politics sure. now because well, because there's such a premium on the charismatic. Right. I'm going to sweep in and change things.
2: But George George Herbert Walker Bush you know, arguably more than anybody uh, piloted his life based on those ideals that you're saying, I mean, when he went to war, all the times that he sublimated his own personal passion and and ambition for the greater good, all of that was done on the backs of a set of ideals instilled in him and his parents that are all the things that you want to get rid of.
1: But he was plucked by the party, or at least other members of his family were, right? Were you
2: talking about Herbert Walker or W? Well, uh, that was actually, yeah. yeah. Herbert Walker kind of did the, you know, spend his time, I mean, he was, you know, chair of the party, then CIA, then Republic, then um, uh, envoy to China. Like, he did, there were a lot of times in his career where he didn't get the thing he wanted and had to go do the thing over here, all because the ethos at the time was that you had dedication to this larger enterprise and that was a duty worthy of itself in and of itself, all of which, has gone largely now. I mean, now, as a senator, just looking at the Senate, you used to have to, like, get on a committee. You were then maybe lucky enough to be chairman of a subcommittee. Then maybe the next time you might get a committee chairmanship. And then if you were nice to the majority leader, you might raise up, and after a little while, now you just blow through all that and go book yourself a few hits on cable. Well, and you, that... you are now equal to your majority leader, because you can say... You are now and,
1: Ted Cruz.
2: And John Boehner called them false prophets, which is that if you are charismatic on television, you can say, you know, all these hard things that the leaders of our party are doing here—that are part of governing, that are a part of what David's talking about—those are all capitulations. Those are all ideological weaknesses. They're not tactical decisions made in a in a system that was designed to be slow and designed to be complex. They are all moral flaws. They are, and and if you can do that, then you do incite the kind of um, chaos that we have. Here's a
1: question I had about something I thought that Rauch kind of glossed over, campaign finance reform. So he, I think, is arguing that that's a lost cause, that part of greasing the wheel is allowing soft money donations, especially to the parties, which then give them more control again, and that the problem with Citizens United isn't that it opened this big faucet, it's that the faucet is now directed to the super PACs, it's less and less in the control of the parties, as opposed to having some hope and prayer of someday limiting the um influence of very wealthy people and corporations right that was a little depressing to me
0: right he's for having massive influence of wealthy people and corporations he
1: just wants he just just wants it to
0: be mediated through the party because the party has a stability and can then reward and punish based on the results that it's getting so did you just find that completely
1: satisfying answer yes
0: yeah pretty much what about you um, I tend to like
2: things the way they were, or a balance of that was the, part of the original design, which is that you have the voice of the people playing a strong role in the process, but there is also some... Uh, longer term thinking and mediation that goes on somewhere in the system um, we 've been dismantling that since eighteen twenty four so right. it 's a long term project but um,
1: so where do we put it back where if you 're rejiggering this constitutional it 's
2: a really good question i don 't because going back to who is ever going to get away with voting for reinstating pork barrel spending? reinstating the I mean, you look, look at what John Boehner tried to do to punish a couple of the renegades in his own. I was talking to an extremely conservative member of Congress, and by which I mean, looked to as a leader in the conservative cause, who was basically saying there, there got to be a period where 40 people controlled our entire House and Senate. Because when, when Boehner would try to punish people for acting out, he was immediately set upon because of there's this, this other set of institutions that are um, special interests, media figures on both the left and the right. Ask Barack Obama how easy it was to change or even float the idea of chain CPI. Like a tiny little change in the way the cost of living was figured as a, as a way to try and make some of the progress you're talking about, David. They were picketing him in front of the White House. I mean, so he had the same kind of thing happening to him.
1: Wouldn't want. I mean, I know this isn't going to completely fix any of that, but if the partisan gerrymandering in the House did not create these very polarized districts, where the real fear of Republicans and Democrats in caucus is uh, to be primary challenged as opposed to lose, wouldn't that have some effect?
2: It depends whether it's the whether it's really gerrymandering that does it, or the big or the big sort.
1: Right. Right. If we're That's... sorting
2: ourselves. You then then it's our fault it. again. Okay, David's
0: telling us to wrap it up. Let's wrap oh. it up. We didn't solve the problem, sorry. <laughs> uh,
1: Fair enough. So you,
0: and now is the time when we hear from our sponsor this week, which is Audible.
2: <laughs> Woo!
0: And because we're in uh, D.C., we're going to do a round of presidential trivia, which is brought to you by the new Audible show, Presidents Are People Too hosted by Alexis Coe and Elliot Kalin, Presidents Are People Too explores the lives of all 44 presidents their flaws, their scandals and their bodily ailments So, John Dickerson and Emily are about to be subject to a quiz if uh, John doesn't ace this quiz his reputation as a presidential scholar will be damaged irrevocably but
1: for me the expectations are low (laughs) appropriately so
0: uh, no you have way. no reputation that can be damaged irrevocably. <laughs> so, John mean. and Emily. Boo. 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 Oh, come, Boo. come on. Boo. Blah, blah, blah. On Boo. John and Emily, your job is to identify the follow- if the following quotes were said by real or by fictional presidents. So we'll go, um, this first one will be... Um, we'll do it together. Yeah, good. Okay. All right, that's fine. <laughs> Here's number one quote. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us that a real or a fictional president?
2: I'm going to say fictional.
1: I have no idea. Fictional.
2: <laughs> eh. oh. Real. Who?
1: Maybe each time we should get the guess? opposite thing.
2: Either Goldwater or Reagan. Reagan. Okay. But it seemed like it didn't have the lift. It was kind of
0: blocky.
1: Yeah, I agree. Flat.
0: Yeah. yeah. All right, number two. Fake quote. <laughs> number two. Life will go on, we will prevail.
2: It's got, a hint. So it's got a hint of a FDR a hint of with a notes of um, like a hint George Dobby. Top, yes, top
0: notes.
1: I have no idea.
2: With like, life will go on, we will prevail. I mean, that's kind of Winston like, Churchill? Not a lot
0: to... <laughs> <laughs> not a president, so you're seeing that that's, he's neither that's a president a nor a fictional president.
1: Come on, that was a joke.
0: Anyone in the audience know where that's... What? Almost. It's not Independence Day, but it's close. It's Morgan Freeman and Deep Impact.
1: He should be the president.
0: Okay. 0 for 2. In this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. Real or fake?
2: That's got to be some West Wing quote.
1: Yeah, West Wing.
0: Yes. Okay. who said it? President President Bartlett. Bartlett. (laughs) Okay.
2: Uh, By the way, I don't think I've ever watched a a full episode of the West Wing.
1: You know, my...
0: You guys are going to be taken out on a stretcher (laughs) talking like that. Okay, next one. I am not fit for this office and should never have been here.
2: Well, you know, FDR said something really close to that right before he uh, actually took the office. He said it to his son, but I don't. It wasn't exactly that. Or it could. Oh, you know what? Let's say it's
0: Truman. It is a real president. Ah, uh, it's not Sorry. Truman. Warren Harding. Oh. Tru- oh, that's funny because
2: I'm ta- I'm talking about Warren Harding later.
0: Uh, uh, all right, we'll do two two more quick ones here. I have opinions of my own, strong opinions, but I don't always agree with them. Hint, we've talked about this president already. It sounds like Thomas Dewey.
1: Ronald Reagan?
0: George H.W. Bush. <laughs> was
2: he president when he said that?
0: Here's That's why like I a ask.
2: Yogi Berra quote. Because he has not
0: a... <laughs> Last one, I don't... There's no, there's no sourcing supplied here.
2: So he, uh, when he was asked about um, trying to get rid of Ed Meese, uh, he, he has this great quote where he says, I deny ever having an opinion about anything. <laughs>
0: All right, last one. Blessed are the young, for they shall inherit the national debt. Real or fictional? Would
1: a president really have said that? I don't think so. I'm going with fictional.
0: I don't know. These are all like...
1: Too hard.
2: No, they're also just like... They're weak.
1: Platitudinous.
0: They're weak means John can't get it.
1: <laughs> Did you know any
2: of the no, answers? Okay. No,
0: absolutely not. I would have been 0 for. Total 0 for. It's Herbert uh, Herbert Hoover. Yeah, that's good. That's actually that one's. Now that, that one means is like
1: something. a dose of uninspirational reality. It seems like Herbert Hoover was your guy.
0: <laughs> no, that that one was not weak. Whereas the uh, useless idealism of Morgan Freeman would be yours. Anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll I'll take that
0: for more fun and possibly useful information on the people who have held our nation's highest office. Start a 30-day trial membership with Audible and enjoy a free audiobook, plus unlimited access to the new feature Channels, which offers members original audio shows, stand-up comedy, playlists, and more. Go to audible.com originals for more. We're only a few days out from the Republican convention, and we still know hardly anything about what's going to happen, except that it is going to be bananas. The RNC and the Trump campaign have been tight-lipped about their plans, which has led to feverish speculation about what may happen in Cleveland. John and Emily, I didn't even tell you this, but I was leaked one of the planning documents for the convention opening night. I'm going to read a bit of it.
1: Really? Are you making yeah. this up?
0: So, blah, blah, 8.03 p.m., Texas delegation, Speaker Ryan opening presentation, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And lo, he shall be carried in on a palanquin of gold. His six litter bearers shall be naked to the waist. Every hair of their bodies shall be shaved and clean. Their torsos shall be greased with the fat of a grizzly bear. Governor Christie and Speaker Gingrich shall take the positions at the head of the litter, Eric and Donald Jr. in the rear. Behind the palanquin shall trail a wagon of the vanquished drawn by a milk-white ass. On this wagon, chained by the neck, shall ride the 16 defeated candidates clad in ragged loincloths. Then a few notes about how they shouldn't feed Cruz or Jeb for several days so that they shall look gaunt and pale. Then the bit about Ivanka in the platinum chainmail astride a Palomino. And the, 12, and the twelve trumpets shall sound and the gates will open and he will rise to the podium and all will bow and all shall avert their gaze. So it sounds great, really.
1: It sounds like a good reality TV show. I'm
0: sorry, I'm going to miss it. Um... So, John, you're going to go in. How, how do you expect Cleveland is going to be different from previous, previous conventions you've been to?
2: Well, I think that um, since 1980 on the Democratic side, every convention that we've seen, everybody's said in one version or another, it's so, it's so prepackaged. It goes off and it looks like a big, one long, big infomercial. I bet if we looked at the Google spike on the word infomercial and convention, it would just go sky high. If this comes off and is that flawless and that seamless in its representation of one of America's major political parties and the unity with its nominee, that will be news. So if the normal thing happens, that will be news. If you talk to members, who are many of whom are not attending... They worry, uh, you know, about the state of the party, the future of the party, the lack of unity, the nominee. I mean, you have one of the speakers is the Senate Majority Leader who says that the party's nominee is not a credible candidate. So how a person goes and gives a speech at that nominee's convention when he has said he's not a credible candidate is a seems to me to be a tension in the system.
1: How different... Will, do you think the composition of the attendees really be, do you think it's going to feel wholly different that all the normal people you used to, you look forward to seeing will all be missing?
2: No. Well, so a lot of the, so a lot of the officials will be missing and in smaller degrees, that was certainly true of, of other parties. I mean, um, when Barack Obama had his, uh, re-election convention, there were, some members of his party that didn't show up because they were in tough races and he was a liability. The numbers are much larger in that with Donald Trump or you have members who I was talking to one the other day and I said, so I'll see you in Cleveland. And, and they were like, if you if you're there in the 20 minutes, I am. I mean, they so the the level of um, separation from the show in Cleveland is bigger now this year than we've seen before. I think, though, the delegates, a lot of the delegates are regular old party people. I mean, that was one of the fears that Donald Trump had was that a lot of the people who are there tend to be more establishment-type Republicans than Donald Trump-type Republicans, which means you you could have a dynamic of what happens in the House and then a dynamic of what's going on outside. I mean, obviously, not only because there will be the protests, but because a lot of the Trump supporters, who won't be credential delegates, but who are part of his movement, will be there just to be, you know, cheering him on. John, just to talk
0: about one, um, so when I read about convention rules, I immediately go to bed, but there was this-, this Another whistle-stop convert. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there was this discussion that the rules committee, that if you got a quarter, I think a quarter of the rules committee to vote, they could put force a vote, on whether delegates could be unbound. Yeah. They could change the rules so delegates be unbound. And th- were there enough delegates on the rules committee willing to vote that? And if they did that, then they might be able to force a floor vote about this question, which then all the delegates could vote not to nominate Trump. This is pure ludicrous uh, fantasy on the on the no-Trump people, right?
2: It's a super long shot. It is a... Um you shouldn't dismiss rules fights so quickly though um no 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 because rules fights are great and the reason they were um a big youtube audience just that one person just just went
0: just went to bed
2: (laughs) yeah they're off watching uh, like cats play frisbee golf or something um so in, in, Idea for a startup. in 1952 and 1976 and 1980, the conventions, the first two on the Republican side and the, and the third on the on the Democratic side, the rules fights were really a big deal because delegates who are bound to the vote on the nominee are not bound in rules fights. So if you've got a nominee you're not quite chipper about, you can vote in a rule that actually hurts that nominee to get a kind of sense of the room. That's the way it happened in those years. And in fact, that's how Eisenhower got the nomination. Like he successfully did a rules vote that showed everybody, hey, everybody wants Eisenhower, not Taft. Okay, let's all go to Eisenhower. But
1: there was an alternative that time. We had, there, the Republicans have no clear alternatives. <laughs> Sorry, the virtue of interrupting is I made the super obvious point No, you.
2: no, no, no. It was like an alley-oop, you see. Yeah, I,
1: thank you.
0: So do so you think there is this vote going to happen or it's not well, going to happen because there might Emily be a says, vote on the co- so there's a question
2: of whether they can vote their conscience and not be bound. Um, so let's imagine that the vote takes place and it even succeeds in the rules committee. So it gets voted out of the rules committee. It had then has to succeed in the entire, in the larger convention. So 1,237 delegates have to vote to support it without an alternative. That seems, and by the way, once it gets to that vote, we'll all be, everybody will be on TV saying, oh my gosh, chaos. There will might be, if given that we've already seen the party unity and in rallying instinct kicking in to the extent that there hasn't been a real break from the nominee, despite what Paul Ryan has said, and despite what uh, Mitch McConnell and, and Mitt Romney and various others have said about Trump, I mean, the convention is still happening. He's got the delegates. It's proceeding apace. The sense of chaos that would come after a rules committee vote that unbound everybody would lead probably a lot of people to say, hey, wait a minute, we we don't have an alternative. We look like we're a chaotic party. We really don't like Hillary Clinton. We really don't like Hillary Clinton. Let's all get together and not cause any more chaos.
0: Emily, what do you think? Donald Trump is obviously a a spectacle creator of the highest order, but I'm actually not sure this spectacle lends itself to his particular set of talents. How come? Well, because I, I actually, weirdly, for something which is effectively a coronation, the the ideal nominee has a sense of humility, humility, and like there's a heaviness to them, and that the, this is a weight that I'm going to bear. I'm going to bear it for the country and for my party. And Trump is incapable of that sort of gravitas. solemnity and gravitas and and, humi- well, and humility. I think.
2: I don't. Well, the so I don't know if that's true, but it. Oh, it's um, true.
1: That's true
2: uh but but the the set piece where you deliver the solemnity thing is not his like he doesn't that he doesn't like that I mean right. he delivers speeches with teleprompters that aren't as exciting as his normal, and he's admitted this he's said like I don't talk about some topics which you might want me to talk about because. I gotta keep the crowd going, Um, so I gotta talk about a lot of things, and that's why you may think I'm off message.
0: Do you think? I guess. Do you think? The question is: Do you think he can stage a spectacle which will be compelling, not just for the the car wreck quality, which for which some people will tune in for, but really will motivate and inspire people?
1: Outside of his constituency, probably not, but it seems like he has some choices. So one thing he could do is just swagger in, be completely unhumble, and just rewrite the script and have a different kind of attitude and affect and feeling and make it his own and be unabashed about that. That seems pretty likely to me. A second possibility would be to act the humble Burden carrier, and that would be so surprising to everyone that he would get like extra credit for it in the way that you know he seems to get occasionally, right?
2: I think the people who would be poised to give him extra credit for that are probably already gone. And by the way, he's getting outspent 15 to 1 in ads, he's had a terrible three weeks and he's tied with Hillary Clinton and beating her in some battleground states his way is doing just fine for him right now.
1: Right so he's uh, really unlikely to switch. But does he give a speech like the one he gave where he start you know he missed his opportunity to go after her on the last week crazy speech with the mosquitoes or does he give a speech that is more statesmanlike? I think he probably like he, gives a
2: more statesmanlike yeah. speech. I mean the question is just a, maybe this is a small question but conventions are usually about at some point, uplift. Um, You know, in 1976, when Reagan spoke and overshadowed the party's nominee, Gerald Ford, it was because he gave a more inspirational speech. When Kennedy gave his Dream Will Never Die speech in 1980 and overshadowed the nominee, it was because he gave a more inspirational speech. When, you know, Barack Obama in 2004, it is the tradition of speeches that the only one that I can think of in the modern era— by the way, the modern era is the great dodge of anyone making the kind of claim I'm about to make. <laughs> so true. Yeah, right. Because right. the could, modern you could era mean could...
1: like the last five sure. years, the last fifty years, or just until you find a counterexample. Since we started since we the show,
2: since we've been on stage, yeah. Um, the only one that has made news, and it was not positive news for the party at the time, um, that was that was that was negative in tone, was Pat Buchanan in 1992. Goldwater's speech which is considered, a lot of people think Goldwater was a pretty negative guy, was not negative in the sense for conservatives who saw it as a call to arms and a kind of a standard to, to go behind. So I wouldn't put him in that category. So I guess my point is it'll be interesting to see whether the tone of the entire convention is, you know, the the tagline is make America great again. That's that's clearly an optimistic um Line the question is whether the the gut feeling coming out of this four days is a negative feeling about all of the challenges and problems in America, or whether he and his convention find a way to lift up a, an extended narrative of hope, which has not so far happened. Can
1: you say something reassuring about those polls you just mentioned? You just struck fear Reassur- in my heart. I've been ignoring the polls. for you Hillary told Clinton me to.
0: voters. Right. Is yeah. The yeah. Subtext
1: for people who fear the Donald Trump presidency. Those people. I don't uh, know who they might be
2: well, so um
1: reassuring to me very
2: difficult for me to make this case without making both cases, but i That's will fine. uh well no because they don 't we'll be here until breakfast so I think if you are if you are if you are a Clinton voter and you um, and you are worried about those polls, uh, which suggest that Donald Trump has a resilience in the general election that he had in the in the primary, I think you have to. I think you have to focus on his underlying numbers among a couple of key groups. One, college educated, which Democrats have never won. Hillary Clinton is ahead in the polls with that group. He is continuing to say things that would frighten that group, so his numbers will get potentially worse with that group. His number with younger voters and particularly younger voters of color is. I mean, he's at like two percent with young Hispanics. Um,
1: so sensible. I think those the unification people.
2: of the Democratic Party. Uh, is still taking place, and so I think at some point also her adherence to the fundamentals, which is you got to get people out on election day, deal with the mechanics of voting in the twelve states that are going to matter. She has a team that's more up for that than he he does, and his team is a little bit more. I mean, it's still being put together. The alternative side is that he doesn't need all that. He he's got his surprising own magic.
1: Everyone, yeah.
0: John, you're, you're a connoisseur of convention. Yeah, yeah. What's, resident what's of, the uh, thing you're looking forward to?
2: Unpredictability. I mean, we don't... there There's nothing unpredictable... Well, except when Clint Eastwood talked to an empty chair. <laughs> that was... That uh, was I theater. must admit...
1: That was performance art. Uh, that
2: was the number 412 on my list of things that might happen at a convention. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't awesome. really say, you know, in, in 1920, in that, Warren Harding talked to an empty chair. So we've all seen it before.
0: In this case, the uh, empty chair will represent Republicans rather than uh, the, the Democrats.
2: Nice. That's a zinger. That was, that was a good zinger.
0: Let's go to uh, cocktail chatter when, Emily, when you're watching uh, Deep Impact and having, and having, 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 a, little Morgan, having a cold Freeman, brew. Farrell. What uh, what are you going to be chattering about? I know what you're going to be chattering about. Bring it, bring that chatter.
1: Right. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're getting
0: like an extra topic here, people.
1: Thank you. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a very outspoken weekend and week in which she said she couldn't imagine a Donald Trump presidency. Then she called him a faker. She retorted after he... Yeah, so no, actually. Let's not cheer for her because... So here's the problem. There's this thing called the Code of Judicial Ethics, which makes it against the rules for judges to endorse political candidates. And it doesn't apply to the Supreme Court. So what do we think about that? That's ridiculous, right? So you have a code of ethics that applies to everyone except the mo- the highest court, the people who are the most like the king have decided that they are above the law that applies to all the little judges, all the little people out there. That's not a good situation. And also... As much as we may want to have conversations about realism on the court and the fact that it's tied to politics, something we've talked a lot about on this show, you could still imagine having some line of essentially decorum that we might not cross. So is it a surprise that Ruth Bader Ginsburg does not want Donald Trump to be the president? No, it's not a surprise. I Nothing in that interview was the least bit surprising. If you could have Except scripted, that she said it
2: out loud? Or except
1: that she said it out loud in a kind of flip way in the middle of campaign season without any apparent thought to the fact that if we have Clinton v. Trump in the way that we had Bush v. Gore, Trump is going to have a really good case that she should recuse herself from that case. It'll be up to her whether to recuse herself because the Supreme Court doesn't have any way of being held accountable to the recusal rules either. But it will be, right? That's another problem. Also, there
0: are only eight justices, so...
1: Yeah, so that would take it down to seven if she recused herself, and that would not be good for the Clinton side of Clinton v. Trump. And so I've just created this incredibly partisan divide in this, you know, it's probably not going to happen, but it's possible. So there was this moment where there was a case in front of the court about whether it was legal to strip a high school girl for having had, like, a double motrin, essentially, like, yeah, powerful Tylenol at school. And at oral arguments, some of the male justices seemed super clueless about why this might be invasive and problematic. And Ginsburg, before the decision was issued, talked about why she thought it was a problem. And then lo and behold, that op- opinion came out in favor of this girl's privacy rights being violated. Um And since then, she's said some things in... She kind of invites some reporters in near the end of the term, and she sounds off a little bit, and she's very comfortable doing it, and she just went too far because she's in a bubble. Being a Supreme Court justice means that people don't tell you that you're wrong. That's not right. You're surrounded by acolytes. You don't. You have a lot of yes people around you, and there's been this cult of RBG in the last couple of years, and I think she just kind of forgot herself. I don't think it was strategic, and I think it was really a big, unfortunate mistake.
0: John What's your chatter? So, Warren Harding.
2: Um,
1: really? Wow.
2: Do you remember we, we did Warren Harding once before in our New York show, the case of Warren Harding's gonorrhea?
1: Didn't we? Re- did, was he the one with the mistress? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. He's, Sorry,
2: there's a lot going on with Warren Harding, who, who uh, a lot of well, people. you don't... have to
1: get gonorrhea from someone.
2: <laughs> yeah. We should just end it there, that quote. Yeah, put that in your Audible co- quote list. <laughs> all right. So my mine comes from um, a book called *The Republic of Spin*, which is written by David Greenberg. It's a great book about the evolution of spin throughout presidential history, and of course, um, as you all are expecting to hear, that it's been around with us a long, a longer time than we uh, than we maybe admit or think. And since we have a convention in o- Ohio, I thought I would take a, an anecdote from from an Ohio event in the part of Warren Harding. He's a senator. It's 1920. He's running for office. The, um, he has this fabulous guy named Albert Lasker, who works for him. Any of you who are in advertising may know that name. Albert Lasker is considered the sort of godfather of modern advertising. And what he created, which seems obvious to us now, but in the, in the time before that, advertising just meant, like, you know, here's Fiji water. And that was all you had to do, is just get it in front of people. But what Lasker did was decided to study psychology and basically make Fiji water attractive to you. And his great innovation was with Lucky Strike cigarettes. Women weren't smoking. And so he basically created a bunch of ad campaigns that suggested that it would be slimming if women would smoke Lucky Strikes. And then, of course...
1: True, but deadly.
2: Right. And then, of course, you have um, hospitals being built to take care of the people dying from lung cancer. But um, he created this what's called Reason Why campaign which is to explain, like, psychologically why things were better. Okay, so he revolutionized appeals on television and in film. He creates a film for Harding about Harding going about his day. And one of the things that Harding is doing is golfing in this film of him doing all of these wonderful things when he's in Ohio. Harding was running a front porch campaign saying that to campaign was was beneath the office of the presidency. So people should come to him, which isn't King-like at all, but nevertheless. Um, but these videos were or these movies were basically the way to get him out in the hinterland. But the problem is he was golfing in one of these videos or in one of these movies. And when it would run in the theater houses, when the golfing portion came on, people would just go dead quiet. Basically, it was seen as a rich man's sport. And so he had to fix this. And the way he decided to fix it was to associate Harding with baseball because regular men, regular human beings, it was an American, all American game. But the problem is Harding was in Ohio in a front porch campaign. So, how do you get the baseball team to Ohio? Well, fortunately, your friend William Wrigley is the owner of the Cubs. So he got William Wrigley to send the Cubs to Ohio, where he was having his front porch campaign. But that wasn't really enough. What he wanted to do was to show that Harding, that this was created by Harding's hometown. This wasn't an effort to get rid of the problem about being seen playing golf. It was because there was a spontaneous uprising to bring baseball to Harding because the poor guy was running his front porch campaign and couldn't get out to see a game. So now I'm reading from um, Selling the President of 1920 by uh, John Morello. Lasker began thinking about how he could quickly put Harding in the best possible light with the greatest number of voters and then in the process eliminate the golf blunder. His solution was try to create an association between Harding and a sport most Americans followed, baseball. There'd always been a connection, but if the politician could not only show up at a baseball game but actually play. So the Cubs show up and outbounds Warren. In a cub's outfit.
1: What number? Uniform.
2: I don't know. Number one, maybe. Maybe he didn't have one. Yeah, I don't know. And he goes to the mound and throws three pitches, two of which are wild pitches.
0: Sounds like a cub.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Cheap shot. Nevertheless, after throwing three pitches, two of which were wild, the first batter for the Cubs struck out. (laughs) So, um... So uh, Harding, um, oh, and I should say that Lasker produced a memo in which he said, not only should this game be created as if the citizens of Marion, Ohio, put it on for Harding, but he got them to pay for it. In his memo, the game should ostensibly be paid for by the citizens of Marion, who, who realizing the senator's love for baseball paid for it. The appearance of local participation would give the impression the event was a homegrown affair, a natural and sincere expression of a town's love for and appreciation for its favorite son. Before Warren Harding bounds off the off the um, field, he then lapses into one of the most extraordinary extended metaphors about the fact that the Democrat Woodrow Wilson is not allowing the Republicans to participate in the Versailles Peace Treaty. And we will end on Warren Harding's extended baseball metaphor you can't win a ball game with a one-man team i am opposing one-man play for the nation the national team now playing for the united states played loosely and muffed disappointingly the more domestic affairs and then struck out in paris the contending team tried to squeeze play and expected to secure (laughs) six to one against the united states but the american senate was ready with the ball at the plate and we are still flying our pennant Which we won at home and held respect against the world. Hail to the team play of America.
0: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's great. Um, I have a very trivial chatter in comparison.
2: By the way, it was a tremendous success. Like Nobody ever thought about golf again.
0: So um, I had a great date with my wife, Hannah, the other night, and we we walked down 14th Street and went to Trader Joe's. It was awesome. Um, Is that like a new
1: Trader Joe's or something?
0: Yeah, you haven't lived here for a long time. It's been there probably five years. But we came up. So all all of you who are in couples here, I've got a gift for you, which we came up with a great game. And so uh, this game I call 10 Second Wife or 10 Second Husband, you could call it that. So the way you play the game is you pick a defined area where there are a bunch of people, and you're walking by it, and you walk by this area, and as you walk by, you have 10 seconds, and you have to pick some person in that group who you would marry. <laughs> and it is, it's is—it's unbelievably fun, because it's the, it's the the tyranny of choice. You don't get the endless supply of people where you can pick the the. 1,300 people in the Warner Theater. You just have these eight people and you frantically are looking as like, is she, you know, she she's, seems to be talking a lot. Like, I don't know if I'd want that for 50 years. Um, that that dude's haircut is too bro-y. Uh, and we played this game for hours. It was unbelievably fun. Like I strongly to... recommend it. And so I another,
1: I, would it be fun also to have to pick your spouse your spouse's spouse for the other person?
0: Yes, that would also be good. We can should I, do that.
2: Can I just say to all of those in our audience here and all of you listening at home, now that you've heard this, please rewind to the portion of the conversation where David was talking about the idealism of marriage. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This live show was sponsored by Audible. Special thanks to Live Nation and the Warner Theater. Our intern is Kevin Townsend, our producer is Jocelyn Frank, Faith Smith put this show together. So ably Steve Lichteye is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers, you heard from earlier, is the chief content officer for Panoply. The Gapfest is part of the Panoply network. You should check out the entire roster of Panoply shows at itunes.com/panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Use that Twitter feed. You should tweet at that. Aren't we supposed to still be
1: begging for iTunes comments also? Yes,
0: we are now begging. This is the part where we beg for you to issue comments, uh, to leave us comments and ratings in iTunes. It really helps us distinguishes us from these new newfangled podcasts that are coming up and trying to dethrone us that, would, that comment we love you is a nice comment but it would be more useful if you did that on iTunes for, she's
2: not going to pick you as her 10 tech <laughs> husband
0: for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson I'm David Plotz we'll talk to you next week step into the world
1: of power
3: loyalty